Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host, Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now, I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer-songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician, I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players and the musical times and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30-plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Now, some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these northern musicians who performed in northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I remember I was maybe 12 years old, sitting in a friend's living room, listening to John Sigvalson and his band Stonehenge rehearse. It was really the first band that I'd seen or heard, and for me, it was a magical experience. In the years that followed, the band played for our school dances at William McDonald Junior High School. The photos of Stonehenge from the early 1970s remind me of a Yellowknife version of the Partridge family, or the Brady Bunch. And even though John reflects that their music sounded god-awful, the smiles on their faces show that they were all having the time of their lives. Later on, I also got to play and hang with some of the musicians in Stonehenge. Many of them still play their guitars, drums, and horns today. After I picked up the bass and got to playing more around town in 1978, I would pick up John's bass gigs as he was on his way out to study music at Grant McEwen Community College in Edmonton. The musicians John played with before he left for college were the same ones I played with and learned from. In that way, we both share the similar musical experiences from our early days. On his return trips back to Yellowknife, John encouraged me to make my own plans to study, which is what I did about four years later, following in his footsteps to Grant McEwen. In 1983, my last year of college, I played in a country rockabilly band with him in the Edmonton area. Later that year, John moved to Toronto and I returned to Yellowknife. We lost touch with each other for many years until I was in Toronto for a gig in 2017 and met up with him there. It was a real pleasure to reconnect with John, to reminisce and catch up on all of the other players we have known, and to reflect on 45 years of our life experience as musicians. When I got to Yellowknife in July 1st, 1969, I had just started playing guitar. Yellowknife was only 4,000 people or something at that time, and school was out. So 
I didn't really have much of a social network and so on to work with. But what I did have was a Credence Clearwater Revival songbook, complete with chord diagrams, and my first ever guitar. So my two most memorable thoughts about that whole summer of 1969 in Yellowknife, my first year there, were um, spending all my time learning how to play guitar with the Credence Clearwater Revival songbook. What kind of guitar did you have? Cheapo Electric. Um, Dog Breath might have been the brand. <laughs> or Dog Dung, I'm not sure. You know, probably uh, a Raven or some such thing. I didn't have an amp at first. Um, the first amp I, I actually had of any consequence was a Fender Bandmaster, and I bought that from Will Shalowski. And it was good because it had two channels, and I think two inputs on each channel, so... For a long time, uh, we had, you know, everything guitar, bass, and, and vocals running through this Fender Bandmaster. So, so you landed in Yellowknife in July 1st of, of 69 and, and went down to Frosty's and met Bob and Bill and uh, that's what got you through the summer. What, well, playing what? guitar, you know, like eight hours a day too. You know, until I had blisters on every single finger. Even started putting like bandages over my fingertips. In that summer, did you, did you see any other local uh, musicians? Not that I remember. Um, somewhere along the way, very early on, I became aware of Universal Music Machine, or UM Squared as, as they were known. Mark Whitford and uh, Gary Tease was in that band, Kevin Mackey, John Tease, and um, Tommy Hudson was singing. So they were the band in Yellowknife at that time. I can remember going to see them play and they had these Sun Amps and PA and all that kind of stuff and, and then really big to us, it seemed like concert-style stuff, you know. Those guys were definitely the big time. Where did you get to see them? Um, I don't know. I just became aware of them. Well, part of it was um, I became aware of the fact that Harold Glick's YK Radio was the closest thing that uh, he only had to a, a music store that sold instruments. As a matter of fact, that's where I bought my first precision bass and my Stratocaster as well, Fender Stratocaster. I remember walking into the store and I knew what I wanted, but they didn't have anything in stock. Basically, it was a catalog, and have a look in the catalog here. What color do you want? Sunburst, okay, or blonde, or whatever. So I ordered the instrument, and it would come in, and uh, Harold Glick, God bless him, and God, you know, he was uh, very, very considerate. He let me uh, have a charge account. So, you know, put some money down, and pay it off over a few more months until I owned it. And that actually came in really handy, because... Uh, Around about 1971, 72, um, my, my dad started the LNA and, and with Jack Adderley, and so I was working part time doing that. So all that money I used to buy those instruments. So you, you got through the winter of '69 and went into what grade? Started grade seven. Was there any music curriculum <coughs> in school, and if so, what was it like? Yeah, that was uh, Randy Demon's first year. He was teaching the school band program at, at uh, William McDonald, which is a school I was enrolled in. But Randy was wonderful. Randy was obviously an extremely gifted musician, you know, and still is. He was the most talented musician we'd ever been around. He was really, really inspirational to everybody, like myself, who were um, aspiring musicians. 
and he, he gave us uh, permission to use uh, the resources of the school for our band practices that we were having. The first band I was actually in had Dale Pismany on guitar, uh, Tony Bodie on bass, and uh, Wayne Smith on drums, and myself on guitar as well. You know, Randy would, uh, would uh, help us wherever he could, and he would allow us to use uh, some of the resources of the school. And Roy Menall was very good that way over at Sir John Franklin as well. You guys have played for school dances? No, we never reached that point. Because I'd only been playing guitar for a couple, three months at that point. So we were just um, working out in the boys' basement, um, learning how to play songs from Creedence Clearwater Revival and other stuff, you know. And learning how to play in exotic time signatures and polyrhythms. <laughs> so that was my first year in Yellowknife. And somewhere along the way, I'm sure I also became aware of people like uh, well, Will Shalowski's band and Alex Charnicky on sax. There were a bunch of other people. Herbie Lafferty was in the scene. All kinds of people at that time. Just part of the Yellowknife music scene, you know. I would, I would uh, come to know them one way or another. When you were that young and that age, pre-teen, or just entering your teens and stuff like that, were there venues... Yeah, we were very lucky because people like uh, the Elks Club, Zen Sparning was the manager there. She really liked us, and uh, and Don Green, who was a manager there for a while too. Um, they were very tolerant of us, and they, they actually uh, the first gig I ever got hired for that paid money was uh, at the Elks Club. Uh, Don Green hired us to play there in the club room, so we had myself and Joanne Bergas, Wayne Brown became our bass player. Jimmy Polak was our original drummer. That lasted for about a year or so. And Joanne Bergas ended up singing for us at that time. And then, I think what happened is, uh, somehow we ended up um, interested in the music scene over at St. Pat's, which included uh, Vince Gauthier, who um, became and still is one of my very best friends, Norman Glowich. Yeah, we, we sort of started hanging out with those guys um, I think eventually what happened is Norman ended up replacing Jimmy Polak. Joanne was still singing with us, and then Universal Music Machine kind of ran its course. I think what happened was, um, for whatever reason, they kind of disbanded, and Tommy Hudson went on to singing with Randy Demon and T.J. Tippett was a drummer up there, and a guy named Charles. Charles was from the States, and he was uh, living with Gladys, who was the manager of the Gallery Steakhouse. So they had a they had a really good band, and um, they were playing for quite a while in places like the Yellowknife and in the gallery. So we were hanging out with them, and Joanne Bergas ended up being our singer. I think just because she was going to Sir John Franklin too. And then probably about 1971 or so, right around the time that um, Lighthouse was very popular, we were in school band. We're all taking music from uh, Randy Demon, and then later from Roy Menon. Uh, we got the idea, or at least I got the idea, that we should uh, have a horn section. So we added a horn section. We had uh, Richard Jones on trumpet, Mark Bodie on trumpet, Howard Mackay on sax. I think James Milligan was on, was the other sax player. And Alan Burton came by and joined us, and he was playing piano. So we had this uh, four-piece rhythm section plus uh, Joanne singing and a four-piece horn section. And that was a group known as Stonehenge. And we did stuff like Smoke on the Water, 
that's that's where any any signs of uh, humility on my part became firmly entrenched in my consciousness. Because as bad as uh, <laughs> as bad as we were, we looked funny, but <laughs> I can only imagine what we sounded like. Pretty much every single year, the only dances that we would not do would be um, the St. Pat's grad because Norman was going to that school, and 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 the uh, Sir John grad because the rest of us were going to that school. So we wouldn't do our own grad dances because we wanted to go there and do whatever whatever it is that they do at grad dances. But every every other dance throughout the year we would do, and as I said, we were very very lucky that Don Green and then later on uh, Zen Sparling hired us to play at the Elks Club. Later on, we ended up playing at the Legion Club as well, in the Legion Club room. And in both of those venues, um, ball teams and hockey teams would have fundraising dances upstairs in, in the banquet hall. So we would play for those as well. That didn't last very long because actually um, there were some other bands, like around about, I'm thinking maybe 72, 73, 74, somewhere around there, um, Sandy Wilson came to Yellowknife and then... Uh, John Telgen, JT, joined him. So those guys had, had bands, and of course, uh, they were so much older than, so much more experienced, and they, they, on the average, they were about 10 years older than us, and uh, so much more experienced than we were. So they, they, they sort of gobbled up most of that work. Correct me if I'm wrong, you guys are still going to school. They're coming up and, and, and uh, playing six-nighters. I mean, you guys couldn't really do that while you were at school, and you were playing weekends. Yeah, except... Um, during Christmas holidays and March break and summer holidays, we would play six nighters at uh, well, you know Gladys, God bless her, she hired us to play um, at the Gallery Steakhouse, and uh, we played at the LNF Inn. I don't think we did the Gold Range until much later, but we we certainly did those first two venues. It was funny when we were playing at the uh, Gallery Steakhouse for the first time. Jimmy Pollock was still our drummer, and in those days. Um, there was always a stripper on the bill too. So we're accompanying the stripper and Jimmy is set up behind and Bill Luke and I are standing strategically in front of Jimmy trying to block his view as much as possible. And he'd be doing the ride thing on the cymbal, ding, 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 ding. And every chance he had was ding, 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 flock on the back of our heads. What year would that have been? Well, Jimmy was still playing drums with us for the first go around, so that would have been... Uh, well, I'm guessing early, well, somewhere in the early 70s. So I left, I left the Yellowknife in the uh, spring of 75. So it would have had to have been somewhere between 1969 and 1975, closer to the uh, early days. 72, 73, then. Yeah, probably, probably 71 and 72. Most of, the, most of this insanity took place um, during, um, I guess, what would have been grade 9, 10, 11, and 12. Just that four-year period, which would have started in, in 19, like fall of 69, I would have been going into grade 9. No, grade 7, I'm sorry. So we have grade 7, grade 8, grade 9 at William McDonald. And that would have all been with uh, Randy Demon. And then I think Randy stuck around for one more year, the first year at Sir John Franklin, which would have been my grade 10. And then Roy Menaw was there for grade 11 and 12. So 73 to 75 and Sir John then recounting those years. Yeah. And we, you know, once again, I mean, kudos and, and muchas gracias to uh, all of our school music teachers, Randy Demon and, and uh, Roy Menaw, because they, they allowed us to use the school 
music rooms to practice in. Randy didn't have any strings attached, but but Roy Menard did. He said you had to you had to play in uh, the concert band and the stage band if you wanted to have privileges like that. So we did, which was fine with us because you know I I was playing bass in the stage band and and later on played guitar and I loved it. And the same with the concert band, I was playing clarinet and that. So. I mean, it was, it was a tremendous opportunity to just do whatever we wanted. And also, um, we had a nice little cozy arrangement with um, Akecho Hall. They had a nice little room there we could practice in. Right around the time that we got the horn section, actually, we ended up rehearsing in, this, in a spare room at Akecho Hall. And the deal was that once a month, we would torment the student body with a free dance in exchange for getting to use this room. And I, I seem to recall that that's where most of the rehearsals with the uh, horn section, that stuff all took place. As I say, I suffer no delusions about that. I mean, we must have been just god awful. But, you know, we were what we were. And, you know, and fortunately for us, there weren't a lot of choices because there were no DJs. And, you know, if you wanted to have music, it had to be live music. And places like um, the schools and uh, Keisha Hall and, and the Lesions and stuff like that, there were a certain number of local bands that they could hire, but not enough local bands to go around. Places like the Gallery Steakhouse, they used to bring bands in. They had a host behind the Gallery Steakhouse where the bands would live while they were there. So a band from Edmonton would come up and spend five or six weeks there, living in a house and playing in the Gallery Steakhouse. So, you know, and, and it kind of made sense for them to have us play. You're there at a time where there's, there's this transition uh, from talking with other musicians. Uh, in the late 60s, there was a time where it was the Alps and the Legion, and the halls, like you say, and the club rooms, and the Con and Giant Rec Hall, and that was sort of it. And then the LMFM sort of either came on board, and then the Gold Rooms started to bring in bands. Mm-hmm. So, like you say, the local bands were in there to mix it up. Uh, was the gallery the only club bringing in bands from down south at that time, like in the 72 here? I think um, accommodation was always the issue. The gallery had that little house behind the, their club. The Gold Range and the Yellow Knife Inn both had, had rooms available. I don't remember the Yellow Knife Inn bringing in out-of-town out of bands. I do remember the people that played in the bands, like um, the one band that had uh, Randy Demon on piano, T.J. Tippett on drums, Charles on bass. Remember, Charles was Gladys's boyfriend. He, uh, he was an American, and he was up there, and he was living with Gladys, who was a manager at the gallery. I know that, actually, where I started playing bass was that Charles had a visa, because he was an American. He had a work visa, and it expired. So at that time, it was uh, John, John Telgen, J.T., as we know him, um, had already come up from Prescott, right next to where Sandy was in, in Brockville. They had known each other, and so they came up together and uh, started gigging. Charles had to go back to the States. Basically, uh, they approached me and said, because uh, I was still playing guitar, but I was playing with all these other, these other people who were three or four years younger than me, and I was always the best person in the band, which was kind of a damning testimony unto itself. You know, like all that Stonehenge and all that kind of stuff. So a chance to play with these guys who were 10 years older than me and infinitely more experienced and much, much better players than I was at that point was a really fantastic opportunity. So they said, do you want to play bass? I said, well, yeah, absolutely, sure. So I went down to uh, YK Radio and made arrangements with uh, Harold and bought myself a Fender Precision bass on financing. 
and uh, joined a band. Beautiful. It was it was such a great experience. Those guys, Terry Mercer, like for instance, what a sweetheart of a guy he was. Such a beautiful human being, and such a talented musician. And John Talgen, JT, the same way, you know, really talented. Sandy, we actually, um, thanks in, in large part to their their skills and abilities, we were actually a pretty damn good band. I mean, I was definitely um, scrambling just to keep up with them because I was, you know, like I'd never played at, at that caliber before. I went from being the best person in every group, group I'd ever played in to being a rookie on the on the block. But I love that because the person who has the most to learn would be the person who is at the bottom of the totem pole and the most to learn and the most to benefit from. So that worked out really, really well for me. And that's why I went from being a complete moron to being an experienced moron. <laughs> Were you still going to high school when you started playing with those guys? Yeah. Yeah, I started actually in uh, the summer of uh, 74. And actually that was that was sort of my downfall in, in one respect because they were gigging at the LNA Finn six nights a week. And so during my grade 12, every night, every night I was playing till midnight and not getting home till one o'clock in the morning. And I had math, grade 12 math at nine o'clock in the morning. It was not a, uh, a good situation. All I wanted to do was get 50% on my math grade so I could get my matriculation. Somehow I, I miscalculated, and even though I missed half the classes, and so I only got 45%, which meant I had to take it again for another semester. Like, so from September to uh, end of uh, the year, which I did. And going back, even before you started to play bass and six nights a week in the band, what kind of music would you be doing? Well, we did um, One Fine Morning by Lighthouse. We did uh, Smoke on the Water with a four-piece horn section. I learned at that point how to do all the transposing and writing and arranging for horns, the fundamentals of chord theory and stuff like that. So I would do all the necessary transposition and, and arranging, and I would tell each of the guys in the horn section what notes they were going to play. So then they would they would go off and, and do their thing, you know. How did you learn that theory? Elementary Rudiments of Music by Barbara Warm. That was the uh, the book that we studied in, uh, in school. I can remember um, writing my grade... Uh, one and two rudiments exam. And I think I got uh, 95% on the exam. And I think probably I just spelled my name wrong or something. But anyway, like, that's where Roy Mena already stepped in, you know? Because in that two or three year period where I was taking music lessons and he was a music school teacher, you know, he, he was really, really helpful to me. He could, see, he could see we were motivated, you know? And he did whatever, whatever he could to help us, you know? And all the people in the horn section were students of that music program at that time. So I think as much as possible, between helping us with the rehearsal space and, you know, sometimes he would, you know, if, if I needed a reference source and say, well, how, the, how should these parts be harmonized? I may have asked him about that. I don't know. The other thing is, that was back in the days when I, I became very adept at transcribing. There was no YouTube. There was no sheet music available for this stuff for the most part. So... Uh, I had a record player, and I uh, had ears, and I would just sit for hours and hours and hours and hours lifting tunes. I guess maybe somewhat of a testimony to the fact that I had just a little smidgen of talent was the fact that I, I was able to uh, learn all the parts. So I would show the horn section and the piano player and the guitar players and bass players and drummers, everybody, what needed to be done, you know? 
So I was basically a uh, chief transcriber and music arranger and a musical director and all that kind of thing, you know. And as much as anything, just because I was the one who was the most motivated. What were some of your more memorable gigs? And did you did you guys travel? No, we, we didn't travel at all. Um, because we're all going to school, you know. No, I think, you know, among the most memorable things we did, like the aforementioned first ever job that we did at the Elks Club comes to mind. And we, we became sort of like uh, a, a regular in the rotation at, for that gig. And then later at that, not so much at the Legion, but mostly at the Elks Club. And then later on, we would also uh, become kind of a regular part of the rotation at the uh, Gallery Steakhouse. Whenever there was um, like a holiday that allowed us to play six nights a week, we would do that. Like, you know, summer holidays and Easter and Christmas and so on. Most of, the, most of those dances, the school dances and stuff we were doing, and the, uh, the banquets that were held for the ball teams and stuff like that, those weren't so memorable because they were just sort of one-nighters. I guess probably, uh, you know, playing in the LNA Finn because it was six nights a week. Looking back on it right now, it's kind of like our version of the Beatles in Hamburg. Any uh, uh, incidents or uh, funny stories? When I was playing with Sandy Wilson and JT and Terry Mercer, we were playing and um, what would happen is when we were doing these dances at the Elks Hall and places like that, like upstairs in the banquet room for the ball teams and stuff, people would buy him, buy Terry shots and he came in these little plastic one-ounce glasses. Terry would line them up on the top of his piano and actually what happened, he had a Fender Rhodes piano but as it got kind of banged around a bit, it became necessary for him to take the cover off so that when the uh, the hammers would get kind of caught in between, he could give the thing a slap. It was almost like playing a typewriter, you know, like <laughs> and every now and then kind of a whack on one <laughs> to get the thing back into alignment. On top of the piano, there'd be all these little shot glasses, people buying Terry drinks. He had a similar episode one time when we were playing at the LNA Finn. You know, we're supposed to play from 8 to 12, and 8 o'clock rolls around, no Sandy. 9 o'clock rolls around, no Sandy. So Terry Mercer makes this announcement. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, our uh, guitar player Sandy is a little, running a little bit late tonight. Uh, apparently he's stuck in a snowbank. Uh, we're not sure who she is, but as soon as we find out, we'll let you know. So then Sandy finally shows up about 10 o'clock, a couple of hours late. And he says that um, the reason he was late is he was with his girlfriend. And she hadn't changed her clock yet from daylight saving time. Well, this is in December. <laughs> Somehow that story didn't quite ring true. <laughs> how did the Yellowknife music scene change? I don't know how much it changed. I know how much it changed me and how much I changed during that time. I think for the four or five years that I was living in Yellowknife, it stayed pretty much the same. I did go back to Yellowknife um, once or twice with bands. Like Norman and I took a band up one time to the Explorer Hotel, and another time I ended up going up there, and I think it was up there for the summer or something like that. Oh yeah, I played at the, uh, the Gold Range one time with a band. And then I think a third time I was up there, and this would all sort of be like, you know, later on in the, uh, after I'd finished Grant McEwen. So it'd be in the early 80s, I guess, sometime in the 80s. It seemed like there were a lot more musicians, and the music scene had, you know, the city had grown, and, and the number of venues had expanded. So it was, um, there was just more of it, you know. 
So even even the time that you went out to Grant McEwen, like that summer of '75 when you left here and stuff, could you say the same for that? And that there were more musicians and more bands or more venues. Well, certainly after I got back from Grant McEwen, I I started noticing there were some differences. But you know, the original stint that I was up in Yellowknife was just uh, grade seven to grade twelve, so it was like you know five year six year period from '69 to '75 almost. So during that time, I don't, I don't I don't know that it's changed a whole bunch. I know what, at the beginning of it all, the Universal Music Machine was uh, the grand entity. But then towards the end of that period of time was when Sandy Wilson and, and JT and, and Tippett and those guys got together. Um, Randy Demon arriving on the scene. So that was sort of like, I guess you'd call it the influx of the outsiders. You know, up to that time, all the music had been sort of local. You know, people like Wolf Shlowski and uh, Alex Charnicky and... Herb Lafferty, Kevin Mackey, all, the, all those people were sort of local musicians. I have to say, even back then, you know, Tom Hudson was just such a good vocalist. And when he was performing with Sandy Wilson and those guys and Randy Demon, it was really a pleasure to hear him sing. You ever consider, even for a moment, getting a government job and playing out time there? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, that was no, not not on the table. That was, I was never interested in doing that. At one point in time, my mom and dad said, "Well, I think this was when I was teaching in Edmonton." They said, "Well, you know, you could go to teachers college, get a teaching degree, and you can become a school teacher, and you'd have a pension and all that kind of stuff." And I all said, "No, I'm not interested in that." I would like to thank John for sharing his rich musical life story with musicians at the Midnight Sun. To hear more, see photographs of his life, and the full interview transcript, check out musiciansofthemidnightsun.com, linked in the show notes. You can follow along as well on Facebook and Instagram. If you would like to support the continuation of this project, please donate it on our website, musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. I would like to thank the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee and the Northwest Territories Creative Industries Economic Recovery Fund for supporting this podcast series and to thank the Northwest Territories Arts Council, Government of the Northwest Territories Department of Education, Culture and Employment, the Yellowknife Community Foundation, and the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee for supporting the website so far. A full list of supporters can be found on the website. The archival audio of this podcast is from the Northern Musicians Project Collection at the Northwest Territories Archives. I'm Pat Braden. Thanks for listening.